Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the opportunity to come together to study your word. We thank you for the church and we thank you for your word that you've given to us so that we may know your ways. We pray, Lord, as we look at the lament over Babylon today in Revelation, we remember that we are living for the strong city, the city that you make by your grace, not the city that's made of men and by men. We pray, Lord, that you'd use these verses to help sustain us until the last day, that you break through the clouds for us. We pray this in your name. We also pray for Bob, Lord. We ask that you'd bring our teacher back to us. Um, we do pray that you'd sustain him, help him heal up from pneumonia. Um, we pray, Lord, that you'd allow the z pack to run its course, that he would get rest and sleep. And we pray that you'd bring, us, bring him back to us, Lord, in, in your time. Let him rest and heal in Jesus' name. Amen. So today, dear ones, oh, come on in, everyone. You hearty Minnesotans are still coming. <laughs> I know it's cold out there. Today we're going to be looking in Revelation 18. I'm going to try to finish the rest of the chapter today because today is really a lament where Babylon is going to be lamenting over its own destruction. And so that means all of the unregenerate inhabitants of the earth who love Babylon and love the error and heresies and idolatries of Babylon are going to mourn for her. So I want to begin by reminding you of chapter 17 and 18. They're all about the total destruction of Babylon. And remember, when we're thinking chronologically, I want you to think of chapter 17 and 18 as kind of a, a pause in which John is giving us more information about their destruction. So in a movie, you can see sometimes how chrono- chronologically events go on, and then all of a sudden, a person will have a dream and you realize there's a break in the chronology. Well, in a sense, that's what we have in Revelation 17 through 18. There's a pause to give us more information. So remember, Revelation 17, we already covered that. That focus was on the destruction of the false religious aspect of Babylon. Well, now in chapter 18, the focus is on the destruction of the economic orientation of Babylon, that indeed the whole world is involved with selling and buying with Babylon, and what it leads to is a self-sufficiency of man, where man realizes, well, falsely, that they don't need God, when in fact they really do. And so this is a self-sufficient living. Now, I have the structure up here. Notice Revelation 18, 1 through 3, we had an angel proclaim judgment. Verses 4 through 20 of Revelation 18, you had a voice from heaven saying Babylon will fall. Well, then in 21 through 24, you have angels' proclamation of judgment again. Now, today we're going to cover, hopefully, verses 9 through 24, so we're not really going by these these different demarcations, but I just wanted you to be aware. That's how John structures the discourse here. So, as we turn to Revelation 18 here, starting in verse 9, we're going to see a lament. Now, there are many laments in the Bible. Some of them are godly over things that are of God, like Jerusalem. But this is an ungodly lament over the destruction of that which is opposed to God. So let's read it together. There's going to be a lot of reading today. Revelation 18, 9 through 11, it says, And the kings of the earth who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, that would be Babylon, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come, and the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Now, dear ones, notice here in the red in the beginning, I have this weep and lament referred to. Lament is the term kopto in Greek, and it is used earlier for the lament of the world over the coming of Christ. So it's interesting to see that in the book of Revelation, the ungodly lament in Revelation 1-7 for Christ coming to judge the earth, and they also lament and mourn for the destruction of Babylon. In fact, Brian, you have Revelation 1-7? I do. All right, um, listen to Brian. He's going to read it for us here. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. Amen. Thank you. So did everyone see the term mourn 
That's the term kopto, the same term that's used for lament here in verse 9. Oh, good. I'm sorry. We should have another. Oh, here. I've got another mic here, too, if you need it later. So you're good? All right. So the term mourn is used there. Now, one interesting thing you want to note is that the backdrop more than likely to this Revelation 18 passage is Ezekiel chapters 26 through 28. So just jot those chapters down. I'll do some reading from it later. Um, Yeah, they're Ezekiel chapters 26 through 28. There, Tyre is the city of the pagans. Now, why? Tyre, remember, is off of the Mediterranean coast, right along the coast, right along where Tel Aviv is, kind of in that area. Well, what's very interesting about Tyre is they hated Israel. And throughout history, they tried to join the enemies of Israel in trying to smash her and destroy her. So in the destruction in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians, Tyre joined in. Well, God had had enough of them. And so there's a wonderful prophecy. In fact, we're going to read some of it because it's a prophecy I think every person should have in their back pocket because it's one that is so spectacular, you can use it with the unbeliever and show that God knows the future. Okay, and we'll read some of Ezekiel 26 later. But that's one of the backdrop passages. Just as the people of Tyre who hated Israel mourned and lamented over the destruction of Tyre, those in Babylon do. Now, I want you to see a contrast between the mourning that the pagans have, mourning for the destruction of Babylon, and how the godly mourn in repentance. Turn your Bibles to Zechariah 12.10. This is a very important contrast that we see. The pagans mourn for God's judgment. You and I mourn for our sin and long for Christ to come. A big difference. There's a big difference between what believers and unbelievers mourn and have sorrow over. Zechariah 12.10, this is the famous passage where God promises one day to save Israel, to bring them to messianic salvation. He says, this is God speaking through Zechariah. He says, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. Now, here's the purpose. Here's the purpose. It's so that they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like they're bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now, what's interesting is when that passage was first penned by Zechariah, one of the puzzlements that Jews had is how can God be pierced? Well, you and I know the answer. He becomes man. The God-man was literally pierced. But notice the mourning of the godly is that they mourn for him. Well, here... In Revelation 18, and just what Brian read in Revelation 1-7, the ungodly mourn for the judgment that Christ brings. They mourn for their loss of Babylon. That's what the earth is going to mourn for. Now, notice here in verse 10, I didn't underline it, but there's a description here of the great city, and they're claiming woe, woe to it. I want you to see another backdrop to this. That's Isaiah 24. Please turn your Bibles there. I'll show you uh, an outline too here later from Isaiah about Babylon. The reason I want to keep doing this is I want you to understand there's a lot of Old Testament that's written that contrasts God's city, Jerusalem, that he'll establish by his grace, and Babylon that's established by the works of men. There's a lot of scripture that is written about that. And so the reason that's important is you and I should put that in our minds and say, you know what, part of living as a Christian is determining which city we're going to live for. Are we going to live for the city that God establishes by His grace or the city of man that's established by the power and the works of man? Isaiah 24, 8 through 13, here's a lament over Babylon. Why? Because it's a foreshadowing of the last day. This is a prophecy in Isaiah 24 of the destruction of Babylon in the day of the Lord. This is the city of chaos. Notice it says the gaiety, this is verse 8, Isaiah 24, the gaiety of tambourines cease, the noise of revelers stop, the gaiety of the harp ceases, they do not drink wine with song. Strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. The city of chaos is broken down. Stop there. That's Babylon. 
the city of chaos. Remember the term chaos there, tohu? is the same term that's used in Genesis 1-1, where, actually it's Genesis 1-2, where the earth was formless and void, tohu. Well, God overcame that formlessness, that void. God was the creator. He overcame the chaos of the formless creation when he first formed it. Well, in the same way, the chaos of Babylon is going to be overcome by the power of God. So that's a connection that we want to think about. Notice it says, every house is shut up so that none may enter. There's an outcry in the streets concerning the wine. All joy turns to gloom. The gaiety of the earth is banished. Notice, this is a worldwide phenomenon. It's the entire earth, not just Israel. Desolation is left in the city, and the gate is battered to ruins. For thus it will be in the midst of the earth among the peoples, as the shaking of an olive tree as the gleanings when the grape harvest is over. There's going to be no more joy in the city of chaos. Babylon would be thrown down. That was written some 700 years prior to Christ, and now John's apostle is talking about it again. Or excuse me, Jesus' apostle John is speaking of it again. The same thing is going to happen. Babylon will indeed be thrown down. All right, now, oh, I did have an underline. Sorry, there we go. (laughs) Lost control of my underlines. All right. Now, let's keep moving on. I want to try to make through it these 11 slides. I think we can do it, and we'll come up with some applications at the end. Revelation 18, 12 through 14. Again, this is a very long lament. Listen to what happens. It says, Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood. By the way, citron wood is just a, a tree that has melon in it. And every article of ivory... And every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil, fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. Wow. The fruit you long for has gone from you and all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you and men will no longer find them. Dear ones, this whole passage that we're reading here is about the life of plenty that Babylon boasted in, that they enjoyed. It's finally gone. Now, what's very interesting in Scripture is living a life of plenty isn't in and of itself something that God objects to. Do you remember in Deuteronomy 7, God had promised that if His people would live according to His ways... If they would trust in him and be obedient, they would live a life of plenty. So the issue isn't living the life of plenty. That's not the crime, per se, of Babylon. The crime of Babylon is they live a life of plenty apart from God. In fact, they're in rebellion against God. They hate God. They rebel against him. They don't have faith in him. They want nothing to do with him. That's their crime. Now, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy 28.39. The reason I want you to see this is I want you to see how many times wine is talked about. Wine was always a symbol. Oh, I'm sorry. We got a comment or question. I I wanted to ask real quick. In in a previous class, we had determined that Babylon is an actual physical place. Exactly. Okay. But now when we're talking about this, we're not just talking about the removal of Babylon's riches, would this be widespread, of course, outside of Babylon? So we're talking worldly. Absolutely. So Babylon is not only a city, but because it is the dominant city, it is the leading trade center of the world, the pagan world, then, of course, the whole world suffers. And so I think that that's the issue. So what's interesting is when people talk about Babylon either being literal or figurative, or let's put it this way, they'll ask the question, is it literal or is it symbolic? And we have to say yes. (laughs) It it doesn't preclude either. It is both literal. It's a literal city, but it's also symbolic of what the whole world is doing. They're all Babylon in rebellion against God at that time. Why? Because believers, by and large, have been lifted out. Yes, Ryan. I was just going to make a comment on the living with plenty in this life and not being from God. I know Bob helped me with this. A while back in First Timothy, maybe I'll just read. Yeah, passage. thank you, Ryan. First Timothy six seventeen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes 
on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So just great, what you're saying. Great cross-reference. Cross exactly. Um, what I love of what you just read there out of First Timothy is the idea of setting their hope on what? On God and His promises. That's where it's to be. And they're to use the wealthy that are believers. They're to use their gifts for their fellow brothers and sisters. Exactly right. So, again, that's the issue. The issue isn't having riches per se. It's what you do with them. It's living a life that's apart from God. That's the issue. So here's why that's important, and I'm glad you read that passage, Ryan, because it brings to my mind, in the culture today, there will be pietists who will tell you falsely that if you really want to be a, a good Christian, you have to sell all you have and go, go join a monastery, or you have to go move in in some poor neighborhood. Well, that's false binding. The Scriptures don't call us to that, Okay. The issue with riches is when people use them for their salvation apart from God and therefore they become haughty, they don't need God, they don't have faith in God, that's when it becomes an issue, just as Ryan was saying there. So that's the proper understanding of riches. We don't know providentially why God gives riches to some and not others. That's His doing. But what we can say is what is universally true is that every single person is poor spiritually outside of Christ. And outside of Christ, we don't have atonement. Outside of Christ, we don't have righteousness. Outside of Christ, we're under the wrath of God, and we are so poor, we're heading towards eternal damnation. And so at the end of the day, physical riches are what the pagans trust in, but there's going to be an end of it. And that's why, as we're going to even learn in the sermon today, God and His promises always have to be the object of our faith. It can never be riches. It can never be our 401k. The things of this world, they're fleeting. And the older I get, I tell you, things in my body start giving out too. Foot's hurting the other day, pull a hamstring, lifting. Things are, I'm not trusting my body anymore, I'll tell you that. And I know a lot of you have had worse things than me. I look at what Bob's going through. And all of these things make us realize that it isn't here, it's there. That's where our trust has to be. So, very good catch there, Ryan. Um, Deuteronomy 28, 39. I just want you to see, this is, remember, the blessings and cursings that happened at Mount Gerizim? So, remember at Mount Gerizim, God tells the Israelites, if you will obey me, if you, meaning you believe in me, therefore you obey me, you are going to get these blessings. But if you don't, you're going to get these curses. One of the curses is that he will take, take their wine from them. And I just want you to see that as it relates to Babylon. Notice Deuteronomy 20, 39. God says to Israel, you shall plant and cultivate vineyards, but you will neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes, for the worm will devour them. Now, that's a very interesting passage because later in Isaiah 5, Israel itself is the vineyard of God. Spiritually speaking, they were to bear fruit, but they never did because of their lack of faith. So the irony is the lack of faith that they had led to disobedience. Disobedience led to the curse. They lose their wine. But remember, the book of Revelation is about what time period? The 70th week of Daniel. And in the 70th week of Daniel, there's a great reversal. The curses that used to come upon Israel are now going to come upon the world. And that which used to come upon Israel is no longer. They're going to be blessed. Why? Because they're going to mourn for Christ. The pagans are going to mourn for Babylon. That's the great reversal that we see in the 70th week of Daniel. So I just want you to be aware that when you see wine taken away from Babylon, that's a sign that the life of plenty is over. God has had enough, and the curse that he used to send upon Israel, he's now sending upon them. And what's interesting is what are you and I going to be sharing at the marriage supper of the Lamb? The fruit of the wine. The fruit of the vine, excuse me. I think I said fruit of the wine. The fruit of the vine, which is wine. Remember Jesus says... Regarding the cup, he says, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until I drink it anew with you in my Father's house. Remember that? And that, the next time we do that is at the marriage supper of the Lamb with him. But the wine is going to be taken from the pagan. We'll be drinking it anew in the Father's house. The great city isn't so great. That's one of the things that people have to come to terms with when you become a believer. 
that Babylon really isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And this is what they start realizing, that it's going to be destroyed. Revelation 18, 15 through 17, it says, The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city. She was, clo- she was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. And in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance. And dear ones, notice in the red, I have highlighted, whoa, whoa, the great city. What's interesting is there's always a boast about Babylon being so great. And I want you to see that this occurs at the first Babylon, as it were, under Nebuchadnezzar. I mean the first Babylon in the sense, the Babylon that Israel really had to deal with. So turn your Bibles to Daniel 4, 30 through 31. I want you to see that this is a constant boast, that Babylon, apart from God, is great. Now, what's interesting is in Daniel 4, remember when Nebuchadnezzar ends up boasting how great he is, how great Babylon is apart from God? Do you remember what God ends up doing to him? (laughs) He ends up taking it from him, doesn't he? He drives him crazy, and he ends up humbling him. Daniel chapter 4, verses 30 through 31 So here is a pagan king reflecting on his own greatness. What does he say? He says, The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Stop there. The first tower of Babel. By the way, in Hebrew, the term Babel for Babel is used for Babylon throughout the Hebrew Old Testament. Isn't it interesting The term for Babylon in your Old Testament always links you back to the Tower of Babel. And remember, at the Tower of Babel, according to Genesis 11.4, when they built it, they were trying to make a name for themselves too. Why does Nebuchadnezzar build Babylon? It says to make him glorious, to make him a glorious name. It's not to give glory to God. So I just want you to see those connections. All the way through the Bible, Babylon is about man's glory. It's not about God's. Verse 31, while the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. Wow. The Holy One of Israel can remove any king, any tyrant, any pagan, any city, any army at any time. And that's what we see here in Revelation 18. In one hour, it's all taken away. Everything that mankind apart from God builds can and will be taken away from them. There's nothing left. Now, let me tell you a little lesson then again for us. What that means is in the silence of the morning when you wake up, you have to remember every day of your life that living for riches and living even for pleasure here and now It really doesn't last. What does last is Christ's kingdom, the resurrection life, and those things. And so that's why we're constantly challenged in the scripture to live for the coming king and his kingdom. This is a reminder to even us that even the fleeting pleasures that we see in this world, they are fleeting and they're going away. Now, I want to show you another contrast between Babylon, the city of man, and Jerusalem. And so remember we had read Isaiah 24. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 26.10. I want you to see the contrast in Isaiah between Babylon and Jerusalem. Babylon, the city of man. Jerusalem, the city of God. Isaiah 26.10. What's interesting is in Isaiah 26.10, the opposite is occurring because they're singing about Jerusalem that God establishes And so there's great rejoicing. Isaiah 24, it was about the city of man that man built that's destroyed and there's great mourning. Notice the difference. Jerusalem, Isaiah 26.10, in that day. Stop there. Dear ones, in what day? In the future day of the Lord. In the 70th week of Daniel and after in the millennial kingdom. That's when it's going to happen. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. This is the millennial kingdom. They're going to be singing... The saints, those who trusted in Christ, 
We have a strong city. He set up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. Oh, did I mind the wrong passage? Oh, I'm all excited about it. I'm in the wrong one. <laughs> it sounded good, yeah. wonder what I just read to you. <laughs> Hope it's not one of those apocryphal books. <laughs> Strong city. You know what? Let me pull up. Um, can somebody find that in the concordance? I wonder if I can find it. There we are. I'm back. Okay. Yeah, Brian, go ahead. Before you do that, I, I was just curious. Wasn't the original Babylon on the Euphrates? Yes. Okay. Then this Revelation 18, uh, 17 could give us a clue since we've determined that Babylon is an original place because why would they now refer to shipmasters, sailors, and the sea when the original Babylon, you wouldn't refer to that as that? Follow me? So what you're saying is the original Babylon, you wouldn't have shipmasters, etc.? Is that what you're saying? And so why have... the sea. Yeah, well, let me explain. Okay. What's interesting is that was troubling to me as well. And I'll tell you, um, so what... Let me just try to rephrase, and you tell me if I'm rephrasing you incorrectly. What Brian is saying is, look, the first Babylon is built on the Euphrates, but what's, what in the world, when you look at this, Euphra- this Babylon, if it's really built along the Euphrates, why is there all this mention of seemingly ocean travel, sea travel. That doesn't seem to coincide with the Euphrates. What's very interesting is when I was looking into this, about 333 B.C., Alexander the Great was actually able to build harbors in Babylon. In fact, a lot of excavations have shown that much of what had happened in Babylon as far as the deterioration of different archaeological sites has occurred because of salt water. So my whole point in saying that is there was a harbor there at one time. And I think literally it will be reestablished again. It will be a major port. And again, there will be selling. I think we just take it literally. Here's one of the reasons why we know that that city is going to be on the Euphrates. The Euphrates is very prominent in Revelation 16. Where are the demons locked away? Well, they're locked away at the Euphrates. Where do the kings from the east come? They come from the Euphrates. Well, where's Babylon? Well, it's along the Euphrates. We know it's a city, and it's constantly referred to as Babylon. And unless we're given some clue in Scripture as to it being something symbolic of something else, remember John tells us, remember the dragon. He says the dragon is Satan. You and I don't have to wonder what the dragon is. He just tells us. Remember, he does that with the lampstands. He tells us what they are. So in the same way, if Babylon wasn't literal Babylon, I think he'd have to tell us. Okay, If it's not an allusion to something in the Old Testament, or he doesn't tell us, It's literal Babylon. So, again, I think that that's the answer. I think it will be established as a port again, and um, it'll be another... I know it doesn't look like it now, but just think about this. In 1938, it didn't look like Israel would ever be a nation either. And God does the miraculous, so it'll it'll happen. So, yeah, that's how I would answer. But would that address your question? Okay, very good. Yeah, so I'm sorry, it was Isaiah 26.1, the strong city. That's the city that you and I belong to the city that's established, the city where there's going to be rejoicing. I'm going to show you what a chiasm is again. And I'm going to show you a chiasm from from Isaiah 24. I'm just going to put it up here. I just want you to be aware of how prominent the idea of Jerusalem versus Babylon is in the Bible. There's a huge chiasm. And if you don't know what that is, you're going to find out. What's interesting is Isaiah 24, 1 through 13 The whole subject there is the harvest from a destroyed world. The Lord is going to harvest from the destruction that he sows in the world. That is when he judges in the day of the Lord. Notice here B. This is part of the chiastic structure of Isaiah 24. You have a song of the world remnant. The world's remnant is going to sing, and they're going to sing of God's greatness. That's Isaiah 24. 14 through 16. We see then in C, we have a sinful world overthrown. Isaiah 24, 16b through 20. We see the waiting world to see what God does. Isaiah 24, 21 through 23. We come to the song of the ruined city. That's Babylon. The ruined city that's thrown down. But this 
is in contrast to Mount Zion, the strong city. And we just saw the strong city alluded to in Isaiah 26.1. Well, then it comes back to the song of the strong city. That's what we just read. They rejoice. Now, notice the contrast. I want to pull up my pointer. I've got one now. I've got to remember that. Notice the contrast at E. You have the song, the morning of Babylon, the ruined city. That's contrasted with the rejoicing, the song of the strong city. So there's a song in each. One is mourning, one is rejoicing. Okay, so at the end of Revelation, Revelation 18, the pagans are mourning their ruined city. Revelation 19 through 21, you and I are going to be singing about the strong city in the New Jerusalem. Do you see that? And this is all the way in Isaiah. So these constant themes come back to which city are you part of? Let's keep going. I'll show you the rest of the chiasm. The waiting people of God. Contrast that with the waiting world. They're waiting for judgment. We're waiting for what? For salvation. Evil spiritual forces are overthrown. Notice not only in C, notice the sinful world was overthrown, the sinful flesh of the world. Well, here the evil spiritual forces are also overthrown. I have more of this, but you get the picture that a lot of Scripture has to do with God bringing about His city by His power, and there really will be an overthrow of Babylon. Now, let's talk about the importance of Jerusalem for just a moment. Why is it so important? Here's one passage I always want you to keep in your back hip, Isaiah 2.2. Isaiah 2.2, jot that down. You can turn to it. Isaiah 2.2, listen to what it says. This is what's going to happen in Jerusalem as opposed to Babylon. It says, now it will come about in the last days. Stop there. Can somebody define for me the last days? When do the last days begin? First Advent. Absolutely, yes. Now, how do you, how do you know that? Uh, yeah, exactly. It does say that. It says it in Hebrews 1, doesn't it? Does somebody have Hebrews 1, 1 through 2? I just want to define our terms. So when it says in the last days, we can define this biblically. Somebody have Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2? Hebrews 1, 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So in these last days, he spoke to us through his Son. So the last days were inaugurated, as you guys were saying, with the first advent of Christ. Well, when we apply that to Isaiah 2.2, 2, it says, now it will come about in the last days. So the last days, you and I have been living in them, but they will culminate with the coming of Christ, the 70th week of Daniel. So this is going to happen in the future. Let me ask you, has this ever occurred? Listen to this. The mountain of the house of Yahweh will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. This is one of the reasons why all of us should be premillennial, believing that there really will be a premillennial, or excuse me, a millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Why? Because has this ever occurred? How many have ever seen Jerusalem lifted up higher than any other mountain and all the nations stream to it to give glory to God? Well, yeah, they want to bomb it. Yeah. All the nations want to stream to it and always to attack it. You're exactly right, Brian. They don't want to give worship. So here's my point. What do the Reformed teachers do with that? Do you see they just neglect the importance of Jerusalem? They say, well, that's just fulfilled in the church. Well, no, it's literally going to be fulfilled. And the people who belong to the church are going to be the participants in it. That's what we should see. Okay. Now, let me keep going here for the sake of time. Oh, by the way, I want to just point your attention to one more verse here. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews 11, 9 through 10. The reason I want you to focus on this passage for just a moment is, again, this is a passage that's about where our faith should be directed, and it has to do with the city that has no foundations. That's what Abraham had a faith in. So, in other words, our faith can be directed towards the city of God and the kingdom that he has for us. Hebrews 11, 9 through 10, talking about Abraham's faith, it says, By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, 
as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So one of the ways in which Abraham persevered is that he was looking for this future city, the city of Jerusalem. Now he's referring to, I think, the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem ever comes down in Revelation 21. But that's what he lived for. And so that's what you and I should be living for. This is all over the Bible, that you and I should be living for the Jerusalem that's coming, not for the Babylon that's coming. Okay, now we'll keep going. We want you to see more judgment on Satan's city here, verses 18 through 19. Notice the continued lament. They were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like the great city? Again, notice the great city. And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she has been laid waste. Again, dear ones, the people are mourning over Babylon. You have the sea sea sailors, the shipmasters, passengers, they're all mourning over her because they're all part of the unregenerate who long for the things of Babylon and despise the things of God. Notice in red again, who is like the great city? Remember in Revelation 13, 4, the same claim by the unregenerate was, who is like the beast? So the pagans think the beast is the greatest. They think Babylon is the greatest. There's nothing like it. All the while, God will throw both the beast and Babylon down, and he's going to establish his city. Do you ever remember the description in Revelation 21? We're going to come to it. The description of the New Jerusalem. The city is massive. It's about the size of the whole United States, but it's cube. So it's that way length, and it's that way in every which way a cube is. It's massive. Now, what human being has ever built a city like that? And I want you to think about the great promise. I like to cite this at funerals. In John 14, Jesus says, You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And to me, that's one of the most precious promises. He is right now preparing a place for us in that kingdom. He is working on the new Jerusalem. Just as in the ancient Near East, when a man would marry a bride, he would go away and prepare a place in his father's home. And what's so interesting is that bride never knew when he would return. It was always imminent. It was at hand. So she always had to be ready. Well, that's exactly what we have in the Bible. The great groom is preparing a place in the Father's home for his bride, the church, and we don't know when he's coming back. But what we can know is the place he's building for us is spectacular. So why live for Babylon? Why live for it? Why live for the pulled hamstring? Right? That's all we get here at the end of the day. I used to think I had pretty good speed as a Young man, now I run 30 yards, I pull a hamstring. It's all going south for me. But I can't live for this anymore. I have to live for what? The kingdom to come. What about you? That's what you're to live for. All right? So that's the big idea. The judgment on Satan's city, that's what happens to those who live for the pagan world. Now, the next slide I want you to see is, again, a contrast, or I should say a comparison to what happened in Ezekiel. Remember I said Ezekiel 26 or 27 is the backdrop to this? Again, um, in fact, turn your Bibles to Ezekiel 26. Let's read this together. This is a fabulous prophecy. I'm going to read the whole chapter. And believe it or not, it's worth it. You'll, you'll, you'll thank me. I know you're kind of saying, wait a minute, a whole chapter? <laughs> you are going to love this. Ezekiel 26, we'll start in verse 1. Then I'll put Ezekiel 27 up on the screen here in a moment. So again, let me set the stage. Tyre is, there's two parts to Tyre, mainland Tyre and the island portion of Tyre. It's a nation, one nation, mainland, right in the Mediterranean, and then also an island portion. And they help the Babylonians when they are sacking Jerusalem, and God has had enough of them. So here's the judgment that's going to come. It says, in the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of Yahweh came to me, that's Ezekiel, son of man, because Tyre 
said concerning Jerusalem, Aha, listen to their boast. Aha, the gate of the peoples is broken. It is swung open to me. I shall be replenished now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says Yahweh God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. Stop there in verse 3. Notice the judgment that's going to come upon Tyre isn't just one nation. It's going to be many nations. It's part of the, predictive of the prediction of the prophecy. They're going to be like waves of the sea, just one after another. Verse 4, it says, They will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. Oh, this gets really good. Hold on to that comment there, verse 4. She shall be in the midst of the sea, remember the island part of it, a place for the spreading of nets, for I have spoken, declares Yahweh God. And she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring against Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses and chariots, and with his horsemen and a host of soldiers. He will kill with the sword your daughters on the mainland. He will set up a siege wall against you and throw up a mound against you and raise a roof of shields against you. Now stop right there. Notice he says he will destroy you on your mainland. Notice there in verse 8. What's very interesting is Nebuchadnezzar comes to Tyre and he absolutely devastates the mainland portion of it. But he can do nothing against the island. And so you wonder, well, how is that going to work out? How are these other prophecies going to be part of Ezekiel 26, how are they going to be brought to, to bear? Because after all, Ezekiel crushes Tyre in the mainland, but he can do nothing to the island. Well, listen to how this works out. Keep reading. It says, He will direct the shock of his battering rams against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. His horses will be so many that their dust will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of the horsemen and wagons and chariots when he enters your gates as men enter a city that has been breached. With the hoofs of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will kill your people with the sword, and your mighty pillars will fall to the ground. Literally, this happens when Nebuchadnezzar comes. They will plunder your riches and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses. Your stones, listen to this, your stones and timber and soil, they will be cast into the midst of the waters. Stop there. Nebuchadnezzar never did that. But notice Ezekiel doesn't claim that Nebuchadnezzar did it. He just says, they, that is, tires, timbers are going to be thrown into the sea. 254 years after that prophecy was given, yes, Nebuchadnezzar had come, he had destroyed mainland Tyre, but he could never sack the island of Tyre. Why? It was an island. He could never get through the Mediterranean Sea to get it. Well, 254 years after this prophecy is given, Alexander the Great, a military genius, comes on the scene And he literally does exactly what the Bible says. He takes all of the timbers of Tyre on the mainland, their debris and rubble, and he throws it into the sea, and he builds a causeway so that he can get out to Tyre, the island, and he sacks it. And so literally, not one timber was left. It was scraped clean like a bare rock, just as the Bible accurately predicted 254 years in advance. That's what God does to the enemies of God, to the enemies of his people. Let me just keep reading. Listen to this, verse 14. Oh, I'm sorry, verse 13. He says, I will stop the music of your songs. What do we have happen to Babylon here in Revelation 18? There's no more singing. They're only mourning. And the sound of your lyres will be heard no more. Verse 14, I will make you a bare rock. Literally comes true. Alexander the Great did it. 254 years after this is written. You will be a place for the spreading of nets. You shall never be rebuilt. For I am Yahweh. I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And I'll just stop there. I think you get the picture. Literally comes true. So again, this is a passage when people say, well, I don't really believe the Bible. Take them to Ezekiel 26 and say, well, you account for me how God knew 254 years in advance that Alexander the Great was going to take the debris of mainland Tyre, throw it into the water, make a causeway, and literally scrape them bare like a rock. It literally came true, just as God declared it would. 
Now, let me show you the judgment on Satan's city. Ezekiel 27, 32 to 33, it continues. It says, Moreover, in their wailing they will take up a lamentation for you and lament over you. Who is like Tyre? Stop there. What have we been seeing in Revelation 18? Who is like Babylon? What is like the great city? Revelation 13, 4. Who is like the beast? You see, pagans in every generation think that what man builds is the pinnacle. But in every generation, believers have to say, no, it's not what man builds that lasts forever. It's what God builds. That's the kind of people we are to be. So let me keep reading. I'm sorry. Who who is like Tyre? Like her who is silent in the midst of the sea. Isn't that beautiful? She's silent. Why? Because, oh, I'm sorry, Peter, do you got one? Oh, you're just stretching. I got you. You you don't have a hamster. You got the shoulder problem. Yeah. I'm with you. When your wares went out from the seas, you satisfied many peoples with the abundance of your wealth and your merchandise, you enriched the kings of the earth. Dear ones, notice the parallel. Again, in every generation, the cities of man that oppose the things of God are thrown down, but God will establish his city. God's people rejoice. Notice the contrast now. Revelation 18, 20 through 21. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. Because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. Dear ones, remember Tyre was found no longer? The Edomites, when God pronounced judgment against them in the book of Obadiah, they're found no longer. Well, Babylon will be found no longer either. God is faithful to judge his enemies. And notice, he does it on our behalf. Notice, rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. Now, dear ones, what's a saint? Let's define some of our terms here. Saints, apostles, and prophets. Let's get this down. What's a saint? Well, a saint is not someone that the Roman Catholic Church votes on and determines is so wonderful that they are canonized as a saint. A saint comes from the term hagios, which is the same term that we have for holy. It means one who's set apart. And the way that you're set apart for God, rather than belonging to the world, you're set apart for Jerusalem. The world belongs to Babylon. So being a saint, the only way that you can be set apart is through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Because the moment you trust in Jesus, you get something that you need, namely righteousness, because we have none of our own to give to God that's worthy. And we also have to have atonement for sin. We have to get rid of something we can have, our sin debt. And so the moment someone trusts in Jesus Christ, they're set apart from God. They're they're a saint. So a saint is simply synonymous with any believer in Jesus. So in some sense here, when you see saints, apostles, and prophets, saints is the broader category. That's all of us. But then he boils it down to the apostles and prophets as well. So it's all of us, but also including the apostles and prophets, a smaller subset. Now, why would the apostles and prophets be singled out? Because they in particular were always killed for the word of God. Think about Peter, crucified upside down. James, the brother of Jesus, clubbed to death. The apostle Paul beheaded. Prophet after prophet is killed by those who belong to Babylon. But what God is promising is that is all going to be reversed. There will be a reversal, and it happens in the 70th week of Daniel. You and I live in tribulations and trials here and now. We're under persecution and hatred by Babylon and the world. But that's all going to be reversed in the 70th week of Daniel. God will judge the world for what they've done to his people. And that's something that we can take solace in. And that's one of the reasons why we're not to take vengeance ourselves. We're going to learn that in Romans chapter 12. We're to make room for the vengeance of God. Okay, now, as I say that, let me just make a quick caveat. That does not mean that the Bible teaches pacifism. It does not. We can certainly defend ourselves. We certainly know that the government is given the sword to restrain evil. So pacifism is not taught in the Bible, but vengeance isn't taught either. You and I are not to get even. We can get justice from the court system, etc., but we're not to get even. We can protect ourselves, but we're not to get vengeance. 
Okay, God will do that for us in the future day of the Lord. Okay, keep going. I think we're going to make it through all 11 slides here. Revelation 18, 20 through 23, it says, And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in you any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. Notice the term, dear ones, sorcery. All of the nations have been brought under the influence of the sorcery of Babylon. The term sorcery there comes from the Greek term pharmakeia. It's where we get our term in English, pharmacy. Now, let me explain why that term was used. Pharmakeia initially had to do with people who would put themselves in an induced state, uh, an induced mental, mental altered... Excuse me. Let me try it again. A drug-induced altered mental state. Whew. I don't know, I must be in a drug-induced mental, altered mental state. I can't even get it out. The point is, in order to come in contact with the spirit realm, they would use drugs to put themselves into this altered state of consciousness. Okay, so it becomes then synonymous with sorcery, those who try to get secret information that God has not revealed. That's how it's used. So remember, very early on in Deuteronomy 29, 29, God says the things that he has revealed belong to us and our children forever. But the things that he has not revealed belong to whom? The Lord alone. So the people of God are those who live by his word and what he's revealed. But the pagan world is never satisfied with God's word. They go elsewhere. And so ultimately the great divide between those who belong to Babylon and those who belong to Jerusalem is a divide over who is content with God's word and who goes elsewhere. Those who belong to Jerusalem are saying, I'll rely upon God's word alone. I'll believe God's word. Those who belong to Babylon say, it's not sufficient. I don't believe it. I don't want it. I'm going elsewhere. It boils down. I remember the famous British scholar, John Stott. Perhaps some of you have read him. I don't agree with all of what he says. But I remember he had a great quote. He says, all of humanity boils down to the choice in believing. Now, again, he was slightly Arminian. In has God said. If God has spoken, all of humanity divides over whether you believe it or not. And that's what we see here in Revelation 18. All the nations that were deceived by pharmakeia, the desire to go beyond God's word, they're going to be thrown down. Think about in in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 7, the same term pharmakeia is used when the magicians of Pharaoh try to overcome the miraculous things that God did through Moses. They did it through pharmakeia. We see in Galatians 5.20, you can jot this down, one of the deeds of the flesh is pharmakeia. It says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, that's pharmakeia, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, and factions. All of it stemming from a desire to go beyond Scripture. Yeah, Brian. Um, The uh, pharmakeia and what we see in today's society, not just in the United States, but worldwide with the acceptance of of uh, marijuana laws. And I think that uh, that is going to play, again, the work of Satan, Mm -hmm. that that's going to play a big part in the end times because people are, uh, they don't care. They're they're not attuned, and and it draws them further into the camp of Satan and uh, they're, they're, they're ignorant of other things going on around them. Yeah. For example, you're probably familiar with a lot of the things you see on the news where people are being interviewed and they're just oblivious to yeah. anything right. that, that, that's going on. And as we see four or five states right now with those laws, I say you can be guaranteed that in the near future, it's, it's just going to continue 
to uh, be an accepted uh, uh, part of our society. Well said. I think you're right. You know, it's funny as you're saying that. I was thinking of the 1960s. 1960s, you have pantheism come over. Remember the Beatles? They bring over Eastern religion. You have post-modernity, the rejection of truth. And you have an altered state of consciousness through LSD and drugs. And it's all part of pharmacia. We won't be content with authority. We're going to overthrow authority. We're going to overthrow Western civilization that is built on the ethos of the scripture. And it is a complete rejection of God. And they turn to pharmacia. Whether it's drugs or whether it's Eastern mysticism, all of it's pharmacia. You're absolutely right. It's rebelling against God. I will not be bound by the scriptures. I will know God, my own God. Remember, I don't know, how many times have you guys all talked to people and you ask them, do you go to church somewhere? They say, well, I'm spiritual, but I don't like organized religion. I always like Bob DeWay's answer. So you like unorganized religion? <laughs> but think about it. They're spiritual. And all they're, what they really mean, when someone says I'm spiritual, what they're really saying is I do pharmacia. I'm not going to be bound by the 66 books of the canon. I'll find God my own way, thank you. That's really what they're saying. It's pharmacia, it's Babylon. Yep. Yeah, Christy. Well, I'm just curious um, if there's an illusion at all. What? Yes, loud, sorry. If there's an illusion in um, verse 23 where it talks about the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer, um, to Matthew 24 um, where... Um, it says, as in the days of Noah, when the, before the flood came, they were eating and drinking, marrying, given in marriage until that day Noah entered the ark. Would that be a valid I think you're right. I think what's illusion? interesting about that is in Matthew 24, the days of Noah are like the, in the, the, days, of the, uh, the days of the parousia of Christ will be like the days of Noah. In it, they were eating and drinking and given in marriage. What's interesting is that's going on, but at the, that's prior to the 70th week of Daniel, at the end of the 70th week of Daniel, it's not going on anymore. So that shows us the timing. The issue in Matthew 24 is when does the 70th week begin? Well, when it begins is when they can still have a bridegroom and a bride get together. So you're exactly right. And so that tips us off to the idea of imminence. What Jesus is describing is when the day of the Lord comes, when he breaks through the clouds, life will be going on as it always has been. There'll be people given in way in marriage. People will do their job interviews. People will get up, they'll wash their socks, they'll do their laundry, they'll mow their yards. It'll be gone, everything, as it, just like today. And all of a sudden, he breaks through the clouds. But is this like today, where the whole world is destroyed and there won't even be marriages any longer in Babylon? Well, that's slightly unusual. <laughs> so you're exactly right. I think that points out that this is at the end of the 70th week, and that's prior. Well said. All right, I'm going to try to finish the last slide here. Verse 24, it says, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and all who have been slain on the earth. Now, notice the reference here. Babylon is responsible for the blood of the prophets and the saints. That is all going to be reversed. And that's one of the great promises that we see in Scripture. A great passage that shows us this is 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7. Here Paul says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, let me just stop there. The term affliction there is thalipsis. It's our term for tribulation. Okay? Now, this is very important. Hear me out. When I teach often on the pre-trib rapture, people will say, oh, come on, Eric. The Bible teaches that we have to go through tribulation. After all, doesn't Paul say in Acts 14.22 that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God? Yes. But those are tribulations that happen to us here and now. In the 70th week of Daniel, it's the reversal. And God will put to tribulation those who put us to tribulation. That's the idea. There's the great reversal. So we have to be careful readers and understand, yes, we go through trials and tribulations, but as soon as Christ breaks through the clouds, his wrath comes upon the world and his salvation comes to his people. We're brought home. And so that's the great reversal that you see in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 7. And in Revelation 18.24, we're just seeing that, yes, the blood of the saints is going to be, it's going to be avenged by God. This great reversal is indeed going to come. All right? Brothers and sisters, bottom line is you and I should live for Jerusalem, live for the coming king and his kingdom, 
the fleeting pleasures of sin and the things that this world offers, they will be thrown down, they will be destroyed. These are things that we have to constantly put in front of our minds because oftentimes when you open the newspaper or you see the world, it looks like we're losing. What the book of Revelation ultimately says is God wins, therefore we win. That's what it's about. Anybody else have any comments or thoughts or questions before we pray? Let me just announce um, in a couple weeks, I don't know when it'll be, and if, whenever time period we can get to it, uh, Dana Birkinshaw is going to be giving a message on the different views on the millennial kingdom. And he'll be refuting amillennialism and postmillennialism. We'll probably have a, a series on that. That's when we get to Revelation 20. So realize we're coming to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, 11, Jesus is coming back at the end of the 70th week to establish the kingdom of Israel. All right, so that's where we are. We're coming to it. So very exciting stuff. Well, let's bow our heads in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for our time together today. I pray that each of my brothers and sisters here would be those who persevere in the midst of difficulty and trials, always keeping your promises in front of them, that we'd be those who would remember the world is not our home, but you are coming for us. I pray, Lord, that you'd help sustain us, help us to be obedient, those who live godly lives that are pleasing to you, until you break through the clouds for us to bring us home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.